0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Energy Central Power Perspectives Podcast, the show that brings leading minds to discuss the latest challenges and trends transforming, modernizing the energy systems and the utility industry of the future. And a quick thank you to Western Row, our sponsor for today's show. Now, let's talk energy. I'm your host, Jason Price, and director with Western Row, coming to you from New York City. With me, as always, from Orlando, Florida, is Energy Central producer and community manager, Matt Chester. Matt, today is one of our favorite types of episodes where we get to welcome back one of our previous guests. Are you ready for round two? You're absolutely right, Jason, and I'm definitely ready. This is a a
1: guest. He always spurs conversation in the Energy Central community, whether it's on the podcast or through his frequent posts to the community. So I'm sure today will be no different. For long-time
0: listeners to the podcast, members of Energy Central, or really anyone who's paying attention to the key thought leadership in the energy space will recognize the name Doug Hausman. Doug is a principal consultant at 1898 & Company, a division of Burns & McDonnell. And we're always eager to hear from Doug because his wealth of experience and his insistence on frank, fact-based conversation always leads to important discussions on Energy Central and elsewhere. When we last had Doug on the podcast, an episode published in May of 2021, the conversation centered around the trend of offering quick fixes to the U.S. grid system. Eager to do away with a short-term view, Doug shared why it was critical to look at the issue from a holistic perspective. And you can find this entire dialogue as episode 41 titled, The Whole Grid and Nothing But the Grid, With Doug Hausman. So today we're shifting our focus from transmission infrastructure to the level of generation on hand to feed into the grid system. So let's bring him back, Doug Hausman. Welcome to the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast.
1: Thank you, Jason, and thank you, Matt. It's fun to be back,
0: and it's fun to have you with us. So let's dig in, Doug. We're here to discuss the concept of spare margin. And you've shared with us your view that the lack of spare margin at power plants across the country is a bigger problem than the industry is admitting. Can you walk us through exactly how the spare margin works and what the situation is like across the United States?
1: Well, it's typically called reserve margin. And when I was growing up back in the 60s and 70s, we were always looking for about 15% reserve margin on a peak day. And the idea is at peak, when you turn on enough generation to be able to support that peak, you got 15% generation in your back pocket, some of it spinning, some of it on a ready status to start up and go spinning, and some of it in reserve that's not spinning and not ready to come online but is available and that means if you have a power plant go down for any reason there's another one that could be brought up to fill in that particular space. Now in the 60s and the 70s we were talking about schedulable generation and it could be run at any time it was needed. Today, when we talk about capacity and reserve margin, much of what gets counted in that is intermittent or variable generation like wind and solar. And you can look at that generation and say to yourself, okay, we've got plenty of capacity, but if it's 30% solar and it's 3 o'clock in the morning when you hit your peak, you're not going to drive a whole lot of actual power generation out of that solar. And so we've mixed generation that is fully schedulable with generation that is not in the way that we look at our markets today, which is dangerous in a very cold winter day or on a very hot summer day.
0: Good. I'm glad you're leading to the weatherization issues because obviously we're talking about reliability, and the and the obvious example that comes to mind for everyone is winter storm Uri in Texas in the winter of 2021. So, explain to our audience what exactly happened here, and could extra margin alone have prevented that situation?
1: So, if it was a variable generation, the solar type probably wouldn't have helped at all at night but it might have helped during the daytime if the solar panels hadn't been iced over. The wind generation was expected to produce a certain amount, but because of the ice coating many of the wind turbines got, they weren't able to produce that. Texas wind turbines are not set up like Midwestern or Northern North Dakota turbines or things of that sort where they have de-icing capability and an ability to keep the various fluids in the turbine, liquid and things of that sort, because that kind of cold weather doesn't happen in Texas. Now, to be fair, there wasn't any weatherization on many of the gas plants in Texas, and there was too much demand for natural gas between those people who wanted it for heating and those people who wanted it for electricity to be able to provide for all the electricity that they would have liked to have been able to produce. There are three levels of contracts that have to be followed by the gas pipeline operator. So the first is the top level, which is what's called the city gate. That goes to residential customers, commercial customers, and some industrial customers for heating, primarily cooking, things of that sort, and obviously you would give that first priority. The second priority is what's known as a firm contract, been paid to be delivered gas regardless of what else is going on. Firm contracts tend to be more expensive, and then there's what's called non-firm. So on most days, there's plenty of room in the pipeline to Deliver that gas. So I'll buy a non firm contract and roll the dice that there'll be enough for today. And of course, in Texas during URI or the polar vortex or whatever you want to call it, the non firm contracts were not delivered on until the Texas Railroad Commission, which actually controls the pipelines in Texas, changed the priority among non firm contracts to get gas delivered to those gas fired power plants. Now at the other end of the pipeline, many of the fields, the wells froze or valves froze or other things froze. And so we saw about a 40% drop in natural gas going into the pipelines over that five day period. And so reserve margin, no reserve margin, There were a whole bunch of mistakes that were made by various people, many of them very small, but part of it based on the market design of ERCOT, which was you only get paid if you have the cheapest power. There's no money for reliability. There's no money for overbuilding. There's no money for capacity. There's no money for anything other than if you're the cheap provider, we will pay you. The Texas market was deliberately designed in that fashion to drive the lowest possible power cost, and it still is driven that way a year later. They have not redesigned the market to allow for more reliability or people to pay more attention to reliability or reserve margin. They have instead passed some regulations and some laws requiring people to do that regardless.
0: Okay. Let's talk about this reserve margin a bit further. It sounds like this needs to be uh, addressed, monitored, and just basically have some kind of oversight because weather impacts and other sorts of events will simply happen and these unintended consequences will happen and you can't simply plan for them. So who's in charge of monitoring concepts like reserve margin? Is this something that should fall in the in, uh, with the ISO should it fall with fur Can you can you talk about like who who in you from your perspective should be the czar, if you will, addressing reserve margin?
1: So NERC, when it was originally created, was the holder of all things reserve margin and reliability in the grid. And remember, NERC goes back to roughly when the New York blackout happened in the nineteen sixties. And so it was put together to focus on reliability, making sure the transmission system was kept right, paying attention to that newfangled notion of cybersecurity, making sure that there was enough reserve margin and other things of that sort. Now, as we brought renewables in, people wanted renewables counted in that reserve margin in the total capacity in the market. And so, it evolved over time that they were counted. I'm not sure that that was a good decision at the time it was made, and I'm pretty much not sure it's a good decision now. Now, if you add batteries or storage of some form to a variable power plant and firm some percentage of the capacity then I'm perfectly happy to count that capacity into the overall market. But the question is, is it okay to just firm it for four hours? Or do we firm it for eight? Or 24? Or 48? Or a typical polar event, which is 128 hours? Or what do we firm it for in order to count it in the reserve margin? And that's something that Nobody in power has been willing to kind of set a stake in the ground and say, this is where it should be. And I don't even hear it in conversations among engineers as to what the right kind of an answer would be for that kind of a question.
0: Right. That leads to my next question, which is really around, you know, it's not just a technology issue, but the diagnosis that you've made, the prescription calls for something beyond just. Technology. So, I mean, we're looking at stakeholders needing to really think about this on a more holistic standpoint, and it may require some governmental stepping in or, or some policy around this. So, tell us at this point, where do we go from here? You know, battery storage is a is a technology solution, but what is the bigger picture? What, what pieces need to come come aligned to make this work or, or solve well, this issue?
1: The first thing is, I want to take the word battery off of storage. There are 400 different ways to put away electricity to store it. Batteries currently make up less than 5% of the storage in North America. I hope it never gets above 6 or 7% because it's an incredibly expensive way to store energy. There are much lower cost, much better choices, but we need to sit down and think about the whole picture. Do we allow some level of throttling for customers by the utility. With the AMI, smart meters, whatever you want to call them, that we have deployed, most of them have something called a disconnect or a latching relay in them. The firmware actually exists in most of those meters to set an upper limit for the amount of power that you're taking through the meter, and it can be set with a lower threshold in a situation like URI. So I could go in and say, yes, you have a 200-amp panel, but you can have at most 50 amps of power during the storm. If we had done some form of throttling during URI with the meters that are capable of doing it, we probably could have cut the number of rolling blackouts by three-quarters. I don't have detailed models from Texas. So all I can say is probably. But demand-side management of some form needs to be part of the equation. Storage of some form needs to be part of the equation. And we need to get over the whole idea that solar is the cheapest form of electricity and realize that when we talk about solar, we're talking about an intermittent resource which may or may not be available to us, but will never be available more than about 40% of the time. We got this thing called night, and so far, solar cells don't produce very well at night.
0: How close are we to basically, and I'm not just talking about Texas, I'm talking about across the country, how close are we to a near collapse of the system (laughs) because of this, this reserve margin that we're not necessarily, you know, really thinking through properly.
1: As we close down more and more nuclear power plants, and I'm not saying nuclear is the answer, but it's a base load that's schedulable and it's always there. We're running on a higher and higher percent of variable resources, and we really need to be careful about how much of that we count into the reserve margin. And we really need to, as MISO is now proposing, break the year into seasonal units and determine how much variable energy is available in each season. So I was looking for a trailhead, the difference in the amount of power that could be generated by 3kW of solar cells to run an electric vehicle charger. And I was shocked. In December, that 3kW gave me about three and a quarter kWh, kilowatt hours. In June, it gave me almost 50. And if you just take an average across the year, you're overweighting what it can produce in the winter and underweighting what it can produce in the spring. And that's something that we very seldom have those kinds of detailed discussions about What do you produce when and how far do you have to shift power from a different resource in order to level out the year? So in Michigan, my home state, the last week in February, we need to start storing solar output in order to get through December and January. That's not a four-hour battery. That's not an eight-hour battery. That's a long-interval, long-duration battery that will probably have something in the neighborhood of 1,200 to 1,500 hours of storage in it. Who's going to pay for a battery we use once or twice a year? There's not a lot of income.
0: Right. That's a valid point. All these investments and oversizing these investments, the return is needed to justify the investment. But at the same time, we're dealing with climate change. We're dealing with a public that wants a cleaner solution. And yet this problem has always existed in one form or another, but it's become more pronounced given the challenges I've described. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here,
1: Doug? We actually need a plan, not just subsidies here and subsidies there and markets that are pushing for the cheapest price. We actually need to back up and say, okay, where do we build pump storage and how much of it do we need? Where are the best places to put solar to maximize the value of the investment? Where do we need to build transmission? How much offshore and onshore wind do we need to make? What kind of demand-side management programs are there going to be? What do we need to do to the ENERGY STAR program to make appliances responsive to that demand-side management? How do we restructure the tariffs to make a place for storage, as well as all of the other things that we're going to have to do. And the real kicker on this is how do we do it in a way that doesn't disadvantage low-income people, people who rent homes, and other people who aren't upper or two quartile U.S. citizens who have single-family housing with enough roof space or enough yard space to be able to produce net zero over the course of the year. And of course, the final point is, how do we do away with the whole idea of net zero? Because it's a myth at any sort of scale with regards to the stability of the grid. Doug, where in the energy mix does hydrogen play a role? It's a storage medium. Now, because we've got good salt in Michigan, we could build very large salt caverns and store a couple months of it, like we do natural gas in the state. We're the largest storage location here in Michigan for natural gas in the, in the world. It gets pumped out of the fracking wells and out of the deeper gas wells, and it comes to Michigan because we have a very shallow, very stable gas field, which makes it easy to store the gas and easy to pull it back out. And much of that. Set of gas fields is salt domes. So, all we need to do is verify that the whole storage area is a salt dome and we could put hydrogen away there without much of a problem. Now, we need 120 million, 140 million, 150 million, depending on who you read, of hydrogen just to make chemicals and pharmaceuticals and the other things that we make with hydrogen today. Almost all of it created from natural gas. So We've got a built-in market for that storage product of hydrogen right now that's large enough to support every project people are thinking about all over the world. We're not even talking about it as storage for electricity or fuel for vehicles or any of those things. We're just talking about being able to make fertilizer and being able to have pharmaceuticals and other things that we need. So hydrogen has a very important role in our society today and will continue to have an important role in our society in the future. How far it goes out from its current uses will frankly depend on how much in the way of renewables we put in and how much of a plan we have for storing those renewables in a higher efficiency storage medium because hydrogen isn't very efficient. Okay. Doug, before we get to
0: the lightning round, I have one more question to ask you.
1: You know, we're living during a
0: once-in-a-generation moment with the IJA funding, you know, the Biden infrastructure funding. All that we've talked about, reserve margin, the uh, challenges of the region's face with weatherization and all that. Are we living in a moment where there is a solution at hand with from a funding standpoint or uh, <laughs> where, where, where do you – I hear you're laughing, but where, where do we stand on that? Give us your opinion.
1: The IJA funding is a nice drop from an eyedropper into a swimming pool. It is not sufficient if we were to take all of the transmission funding and utility-facing funding and put it into one transmission line. We would not have enough money to go from North Dakota to Pittsburgh. And we need a lot more transmission infrastructure than that. Almost all of the IJA funding creates more demand. It does not create more generation, more storage, or more transmission. Right now, we're looking at per million customers in the United States, just on the distribution level, about $40 billion required to Rehab the electric infrastructure, transmission, and distribution. IJA offers right around 30 billion. We got 130 million customers. So IJA doesn't offer enough money to do 1 million, let alone 130 million. Now, you want more chargers? There's great IJA money there. You want to provide more money for electric vehicles? Yep. But it's almost all funding on the demand side for electricity, not funding on the supply side or on the move portion of the industry.
0: Yeah, well stated. All right. Well, now we're at the lightning round. So this is the part of the conversation where we get to learn a bit more about you. So, Doug, are you ready? Yep. What book, movie, or show do you find yourself returning to time and again, no matter How many
1: times it's been? 1632 by Eric Flint. What's your
0: preferred way to recharge your batteries after a long day?
1: Eight hours of real sleep. What would your career path have
0: been if you didn't get into the utility industry?
1: If I hadn't destroyed my knee, I probably would have retired as a lieutenant commander or commander from the U.S. Navy after 25 years.
0: Best piece of advice you've ever gotten?
1: Listen. Then, talk, what do you hope will be your legacy? that, in a hundred years, somebody will remember that I said something useful. Well done, and I'm sure
0: that's not going to be an issue. Doug, uh, we always appreciate the wisdom you bring to our show and our audience. so we'll reward you with the final word. What message or uh, words of wisdom do you want our listeners to take away from this conversation today?
1: I think the most important thing that any listener could take away today is to realize that the electric grid is a massive machine that is connected from one end to the other. And if you screw up one piece of it, you screw up all of it. And you need to think about how do you make sure that the piece that you're inserting or taking out doesn't mess up the whole machine.
0: Well said. Great conversation, Doug. Thank you again for joining. And you're, we're just going to obviously have to pull you in again in not too distant for future. So thanks for sharing your thoughts today. You can always reach Doug with the Energy Central community where he welcomes your questions and comments. We also want to give a shout out of thanks to the podcast sponsors that made today's episode possible. So thank you to West Monroe. West Monroe works with the nation's largest electric, gas, and water utilities in their telecommunication, grid modernization, and digital and workforce transformations. Western World brings a multidisciplinary team that blends utility operations, technology expertise to address modernizing aging infrastructure, advisory on transportation electrification, ADMS deployments, data and analytics, and cybersecurity. Once again, I'm your host, Jason Price. Plug in and stay fully charged in the discussion by hopping into the community at energycentral.com, and we'll see you next time at the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast.